Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. Perhaps you saw the front page um, article in uh, last week's, week ago today, uh, San Francisco Chronicle, that um, the lead story, <clears throat> close to tipping point of warming. Did you, any peop- how many people saw this article? Yeah. Only major global effort can halt it, scientists warn. The Earth is reaching a tipping point in climate change that will lead to increasingly rapid and irreversible destruction of the global environment unless its forces are controlled by concerted international action, an international group of scientists warn. Unchecked population growth, the disappearance of critical plant and animal species, the over-exploitation of energy resources, and the rapidly warming climate are all combining to bring mounting pressure on the Earth's environment health, environmental health, they say. Scientists from five nations, um, led by UC Berkeley, biologist Anthony Barnosky, reported their analysis Thursday in the journal Nature. So... This is both not news, and yet, when it makes the front page, it's news again. And every so often, periodically, uh, we are reminded of the inconvenient truth that um, things are getting dicey, not to mention the whatever the weather patterns are for the, the day that seem to be breaking new records one way or another. Um, we've talked about this topic in the past, um, but it's come up again uh, now, both because of the article and also uh, because of this um, issue that uh, Ernie mentioned at the at the break the inquiring mind issue on uh, Earth now. Uh, very as often the inquiring mind uh, is very thoughtful, thought provoking, uh, deep inquiry into uh, what this means for us as Dharma practitioners and how to respond and incorporate it into our practice. How many people have taken a look at, at this issue? Wonder. It, please, um, take a copy uh, with you. It's, it's not only bad news and depressing. It's, uh, some of it is really inspiring and moving. What do we do with this? What do we do when we read a front page story saying only major global effort can halt catastrophe. And I, I'm here not to give you the right 
answer, the right response. This is what you should do or think or act. I'm sharing my own process as we talk because I've gone through so many different feelings and reactions and responses about this um, that um, it's still a work in progress just as the whole unfolding is. Last couple of years ago, I I um, gave some talks on um, on this topic after reading uh, the book Earth, spelled with two A's, E-A-A-R-T-H, by Bill McKibben, um, which deeply impacted me um, about what what it's where we're headed, what it's going to look like, and um, and what our wisest responses can be, the possibilities that come out of this. And I was kind of on a crusade. Okay, we've got to do something. Um, and I've got to do something. And I, besides giving some talks, I was... Uh, one of a number of voices at, at Spirit Rock in the, the teachers' council. It said, "Okay, uh, a few of us." Um, but I was kind of fired up and saying, "If we're a place of consciousness, we've got to be uh, a leader in consciousness around sustainability and around uh, speaking out about this. If this is where we're heading." Um, and I, I, I'm happy to say, by the way, that Spirit Rock uh, has. Um, has evolved into uh, a really um, placing sustainability as a very high priority in our new master plans. You know, we're gonna we're we've just started a capital campaign for uh, replacing the community hall, which is trailers with um, a community temple that will give us a lot more uh, options and. Um, uh, in what we do in teacher and staff quarters that are much needed because it's all 23-year-old trailers. Um, and sustainability is um, at the, the highest level. So that's good. That That has made a lot of us feel really good. But as far as, well, are we doing enough? You know, if, if, uh, if we've got to bring more awareness in, uh, into our own hearts as well as the, the community. Are we doing enough? And and so I went through a period like that. Come on, it's it's up to us. And particularly, what can I do to my part to save the world? Right. And then I've gone through periods of real uh, overwhelm that would lead to apathy. That would lead to you know, who am I kidding? What can I do? And what's the point? And yeah, I'll do the recycling and I'll do, you know, the little things here and there. But um, this is much bigger than my mind can wrap around. And uh, we, we go between engagement and acceptance slash equanimity or anxiety to apathy and despair, and everything in between. <clears throat> Can you relate to 
those responses. So I'm not here to preach to you. I'm here to explore with you. And it, it uh, came up recently again. It's, you know, you ever have that experience where there's a theme that comes up and then you kind of hear different messages from a lot of different parts in your life? Well, this uh, was happening as um, as been exploring this issue. Um, one was um, a really... Uh, terrific book that was sent to me by somebody who used to sit with me 25 years ago in uh, in Oregon uh, who's taking the joy course now and I he said I'm, I'm I've re- I've gotten into this topic and uh, have written a book um, his name is Bob Doppelt and he sent me this book from me to we the five transformational commitments required to rescue the planet, your organization, and your life. And he's a systems change expert that um, who wrote about um, Buddhist principles. He doesn't. This is a mainstream book. I'm not sure he if he even refers to Buddhist or Buddha in here, but five Dharma principles that he sees as essential for um, uh, not just the personal change, but societal change in addressing this. So I got that and I started reading and I said, oh, that's, that's pretty, pretty, pretty good. And I wrote him and he was delighted. I said, if you're ever here in the Bay Area, I want you to come in uh, and share. Um, so that came in. And then, um, and the uh, inquiring mind issue, uh, and then uh, a- another message, which was um, having some contact with a few teachers in Europe um, who are good friends. Um, every few years, the teachers have what's called an international teachers uh, conference for the Vipassana community. Uh, teachers from Europe and some from either f- even farther away and uh, and the states, East Coast and West Coast, get together and explore just the future of of the Dharma in uh, in our tradition and the vision that we all hold. Um, and uh, I said that I'd be part of the planning committee along with a f- couple of other friends here and uh, wanted to involve these two friends from England um, to be part of, be the, the European representatives of the, uh, um, of the whole, the, the, the larger meeting. And um, they both have a great commitment um, as far as um, consciousness around climate change. And they said, well, the meetings are wonderful, but uh, we ha- each of them independently have to really look at when I get in t- on a plane, what's the um, what's the payoff and what's the um, what's the price that I pay for using 
using that um, all that energy. And they said, and it's something for us all to think about as as the future unfolds, how much we're using planes and how much we're teaching locally um, and um, at what cost. And I said, well, that's fair enough. I really want to, would love to have you here, not only because of your presence, but maybe to lead a conversation around this. Um, and we're thinking about maybe doing a, a web webcam for uh, for those teachers who don't want to uh, use the uh, use the, the transportation and maybe doing a carbon offset. And it's I brought it up to the Spirit Rock uh, teachers at the last teachers council, and and it got people thinking. You know, it's like, oh, okay, hadn't been in our consciousness. We've got to start thinking about this. And uh, and so it's going to be on the agenda for next year, whether or not these people come. What is our responsibility as far as um, use of energy and travel in the future? <clears throat> so um, from all sides, it's it's up for me. In the uh, in one of the uh, there were two articles that really uh, struck me that I wanted to uh, share a little bit about, and then we can explore. You can explore it together. Mm. One was by uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi, who um, wrote the article. What did he call it? Drawing back from the edge of a cliff, and it gives this um, uh, example of. The old Road Runner cartoons. Remember, Road Runner and Wiley Coyote was was ch- would chase the Road Runner, and he go off off the cliff, and there he is spinning his wheels, and then he goes back to the cliff and uh, and uh, avoids catastrophe. And he says, "We're kind of like that. We're spinning our wheels off the cliff. Do we wake up in time and draw back?" Or do we crash? And in in his mind, um, he thinks of the Dharma as helping us to navigate through these these dangerous times. First, in diagnosing the problem, what he says, and then in uh, giving some um, pragmatic ways to um, to act. And as far as the the diagnosing the problem probably not hard to see that the problem is um, the suffering that comes from greed and uh, what he calls arrogance, our ethnocentric view, um, and uh, ignorance, just not seeing the consequences of our actions. And that it's based on the the misunderstanding that um, the key to economic growth, as he says, um, is mass consumption. That is a basic fallacy, fallacious um, thinking that is propagated by 
corporations, politicians, and the media. And that um, in order to make a change, in his opinion, from a dharmic point of view, it requires um, an immediate response, a long-term pragmatic response, and a systemic response. I'll just share with you some of his, his thoughts. The immediate one is we wake up and realize we are destroying the planet. Okay. But, and we stop doing whatever we can like the the article in, in the Chronicle says, well, we better stop real fast. And then the long-term, just uh, looking for different sources of energy and that the corporations aren't running things. Okay, now, that's a pretty big long shot. Second one. And then the systemic is that what's called for is a, a change of consciousness. That is uh, really seeing that true happiness lies in a different place than getting our uh, next hit of pleasure. And um, seeing that it lies in not fulfilling the craving and also understanding how actions have, conscious, have consequences and that we are living in an interconnected world. And as he says, um, it re- will require a clear, honest understanding of the predicament and ethics grounded in humility, compassion, and global stewardship. When, you're, when I read that article, it all made perfect sense. And there's a part of me that says, yeah, so how could that come about? Good luck. Maybe, maybe it comes about when we see, oh, we are... Um, uh, there's no turning back. We're we're off the cliff, about to fall, and it's quite possible. I've always thought that you know that um, dukkha is usually what wakes wakes us up intrapersonally and uh, globally. So perhaps we have to go through enough dukkha to change. That it's so hard to change habits. I mean, when you think about it in your own practice, even when you know that doing a certain action you're going to regret, you know that mysterious moment where you say, you know, I know this is going to be not so good in the long run, but it feels so good now, you know. What the heck? Now, you know that. Here you are Dharma students, right? who are trying to be as conscious as you can, and probably you um, get deceived from time to time in your own consciousness. So imagine how hard it is for those not so aware or for um, a whole social psyche to change unless there is real... Uh, consequences that are immediately felt. Okay, so that's one article. The other article that really touched me, and I recommend highly, I think I'm going to read a little from it, is uh, Joanna Macy's article, which, um, what is it called? Living on the Edge of Time, or something like that. Woman on the Edge of Time. And she, um, she's brilliant. 
as well as inspiring. I'm sure most of you are familiar with Joanna, um, who, of course, lives right here in Berkeley. Uh, And uh, she has the long-range view, the Dharma perspective. She said she she, um, did a three-month self-retreat at her her house um, last year, just reflecting on this, how to, um, just how to come up with a deeper kind of inquiry. And it was um, a retreat inquiring into deep time. And there were some understandings that, uh, that were new to me as she, as she articulated them. One that our lifestyle masks the perspective of deep time, which is the the perspective that includes the past and all that came before and the future that all that will come about, that we might know it here intellectually, but everything in our culture conspires against looking at that long-range view. And just want to share with you a couple of her thoughts that really struck me. Time in our current life becomes an increasingly scarce commodity. Our lives are driven, pressured, and fragmented by hurry. We often blame ourselves for having poor time management skills, but the source of the problem is in the nature of the industrial growth society. To be more precise, it is in its technology and its market forces. Searching for efficiency, we develop technologies to increase the speed of every operation and machine and start measuring time in ever more minuscule fragments, nanoseconds and fractions of nanoseconds. Speed-induced pressures affect the body, of course, producing many forms of hurry sickness and the feeling that things are out of control. In addition to technology, market forces are at work in accelerating time. With the primacy given to corporate returns, goals are determined and progress is measured in terms of how fast profits and market shares increase. Corporations seek to show not only a greater profit every quarter, but also a rising rate of growth This makes for exceedingly short-term thinking. There's little or no room for reflection or weighing consequences. In my teaching, I find this theme of great interest to young people. Although they enjoy the instant communications through the acceleration of electronic gadgets, they suffer over not having time to finish anything or to think through one thing before something else comes along. I remember when uh, Sesame Street, when I was young and Sesame Street was just starting out and just thinking, wow, you know, the attention span is narrowed down to, you know, two seconds. That's a long hit for a, a young child's brain. And now it's, you know, that's long by now. You have, you see these flashes where there's like about 50 pictures in two seconds, you know, like that. And so we we forget to think of time in, in a different way. I'll just read a little bit more. 
We use up everything we can, forests, fisheries, oil, coal, without any thought of what's left for future generations. What we don't consume, we contaminate or destroy. Rivers, oceans, topsoil, not to mention cultures. It's strange indeed that we're willing to do this, given the fact that in past eras, people labored for generations on cathedrals and sacred cities and irrigation schemes that they didn't expect to see completed in their lifetime. What a different psyche that is. Yet I've come to believe that this behavior, as distressing as it is, is not because we're evil, but because we're caught up in a mind-destroying acceleration of time. And I also believe that we can begin to free ourselves from this and reclaim our birthright to live in sync with the natural world and in wholesome relation to the past and the future. And she talks about continual connection to the future, continual, while you're living in the present, of course, continual connection to see actions and consequences and to think in terms of, um, as the Native Americans, uh, the Iroquois particularly, would make every decision based on what will be the consequence for a seventh generation from now. I think it's one of the... uh, uh, It's one of the companies that does the recycling seventh generation. Uh, It's called because, oh, what is the consequence of of doing this right for people way and and, uh, other beings way in the future? I'll just read one more piece and then I think we'll do a little exercise. When fear and despair arise over the state of our world, The deep time perspective helps me look farther down the road and keep on going. There are so many who have gone before and who are coming after. It buoys me to feel linked with them in this ongoing drama. Feeling that, I can see the work my colleagues and I are doing as giving people an appetite for living with our planet in this fateful time and doing what we can so that the beings of the future can play their part as well. This is my most basic motivation. Because I think about the future beings so much, there are times when I imagine I hear them. They are right behind my left shoulder, and they're telling me not to give up. They're telling me it doesn't matter that I'm not a nuclear physicist or a climatologist with expertise and renown. They remind me that what matters is that I am alive now, and they are not, and I can speak for them. So one exercise that that she does, I thought maybe we could just experiment with ourselves, um, is to imagine being a being in the future. And... um, looking back what we would have to say to us with hopefully as wise and kind of a heart as possible. So I just invite you 
we'll just experiment with this to sit up for a moment. And uh, close your eyes. And um, imagine living 75 years from now. And you can pick the age. You can be a child, a teenager, a young adult or an adult. And first just uh, hang out with your idea of what life might look like or be like. Just the way it is. Oh, this is what life is like now. Whether it's something that has some hope or inspiration in your vision or or not. There's no right or wrong in this. Just see what comes to you as what somebody 75 years from now, what their life might look like. At least the external part as well as what it feels like inside. And then, suppose you had a chance to speak to someone today and share any thoughts, any reflections, any questions or words of encouragement to someone today, maybe someone just like you. What would that being want to say? Now, what I'd like you to do, I've done this exercise myself in a, <clears throat> with Joanna in a 
in a slightly different way, but the general idea is here is um, if you're open to it, uh, to get into um, a triad with two other people and speak from that being who lives 75 years from now and you're speaking to two people who are living today and sharing with them what you want them to know or what you want to ask or what you want to say either for inspiration or for frustration or whatever um, and uh, witness each other. Okay, and I think we'll take like about oh uh, three minutes each, and I'll ring a bell when it's time. And it can be a if you want, it can be a dyad if uh, if it's not evenly um, divided up. And I'd really encourage you to do this. You, I know you might say, "Oh my goodness, I I don't feel like talking to anybody, or I don't have anything to say." This is uh, kind of showing up for the situation, and there's no right or wrong, but let's just uh, see what comes out of you. So I welcome you to turn to a couple of people near you. And um, you can uh, decide who goes first and go... Now, okay, ready? First person can go. And the other two are really witnessing. You're witnessing. So one person speaks at a time. Okay, okay. Okay, start finishing up. And uh, can thank your partners, and let's come on back for a few minutes. First, just notice what's uh, what's going on for you now inside. And if you can make space enough to hold. Hold it all with a very kind, loving awareness. Getting in touch with caring inside. Held with wisdom. Okay, so <clears throat> we have a, a few minutes, <clears throat> and I I realize that things you know might get stirred up, <clears throat> and uh, part two, which I thought was next week, before I got the wrong, the dates wrong, uh, is about is different um, strategies and uh, working with it as practice. So uh, I hope you can. Just uh, hang in there for a couple of weeks. <laughs> but uh, 
anything that came up for you either in that exercise or as a way that helps you hold in your wisest moments um, the whole issue? Um, I don't know if this is uh, wisdom. It's actually something that uh, bothers me. Uh, this is something that I've been thinking about f- for a while. Like For myself, I do my best to be as conscientious as possible. And I'm starting to feel this anger towards humanity. Uh, and it feels in conflict to my Buddhist practice of compassion. Mm-hmm. And so there's like this disdain that's coming up of like, well, I should feel compassion toward people, but they're so awful. (laughs) You know, like what we're doing. But then there's this real compassion for the earth, Mm -hmm. which is suffering. And and it's almost like these two things are in conflict, my compassion for the earth and then compassion for people. Because, and I don't, (laughs) you know, I've never voiced it out loud. Mm Mm-hmm. And there's a confusion about how to hold that. Yeah. Well, it's understandable to feel anger and outrage and because it's coming from caring. So that's the first thing to get in touch with. That's the source. It's a heart that really cares. And uh, I think it's possible to have both anger and frustration on the one hand and um, another level of compassion for the ignorance that causes people to act against their own self-interest. It's like the Buddha saying, you know, everybody around wants to be, everybody he could see wanted wants to be happy and everybody doing exactly the things that cause more suffering. That was 2,600 years ago. Now we've just kind of upped the ante with our you know, with our modern technology. But it's uh, it's just ignorance. So it's compassion for the ignorance. Because even, even the corporate moguls would probably want a better world, a good world for their grandchildren if they could think about it. It's just like not connecting the dots. Um, so there's anger, outrage, caring, and compassion for the confusion behind it. But you've got to make space for it all. If you, if you say, oh no, I shouldn't be feeling that, then you're just working against yourself. And so it's just, yep, it's all there and there's an awareness that can hold it. And as one of the articles talks about, you know, world systems come and go. This is a, another maybe shift in the... In the uh, in the Earth's balance, but um, in one of the other articles that I wanted to share with you, that there is, it's just the natural way of things. Even our confusion and our ignorance is part of the natural evolution of things. We're part of that. Who's, we just have this image that, oh, we've, it's up to us to make it all right, but maybe it's not. Maybe there's something that will come beyond us and after us. But 
you got to let go of knowing. That's where the deep time helps so much, that it's, you're letting go of figuring out any answers and just allowing yourself to hold it all. Here's, thanks, Andrew. I, um, when this first came up, I just I pretty immediately go into berating myself and just being like, I shouldn't, I shouldn't drive or I shouldn't eat tropical fruit or should I get on that plane that I booked, you know, like a month away. And then um, I start coming back to the compassion thing where it seems everything goes and it makes sense and that's why it's a center of the practice. Um, on just noticing that that anxiety and that fear of technology or of things speeding up isn't productive for myself or my energy or like around me or anything. So it's just coming back to seeing that. I think the the deep time is really important Mm -hmm. um, to just understand that I don't need to solve it or I don't need to feel the guilt and that um, it's, uh, it's bigger than that. And it's Mm -hmm. just, just to be, I guess it's the, like you were saying earlier, the difference between um, apathetic and equanimity of just like, if you have the compassion for yourself and you don't get stuck in that like crazy feedback loop, Mm-hmm. where you're just feeling guilty and bad or something, then you can come, you can be aware, but not be so um, swept away by it. And so to be more towards equanimity. But mm-hmm. it's interesting to hear this and to feel it come up and to just go through so many things and then come back to just like compassion. And just like, yeah, it's oh, beautiful. Yeah. And, and uh, the thing is guilt and, and fear um, don't add to the, to the solution. It's just more contraction that's putting that energy out. And of course, how can, you know, it's completely understandable and human to feel guilt and fear. It's not that you shouldn't feel, just like you're not feeling the anger, but somehow to hold it in a bigger picture where, oh yeah, that's part of being human. And there's something that I can do that is cultivate a bit more love, a bit more caring, a bit more consciousness, and that also is our offering to to the world. So, thank you. Okay, last comment, then we should go, Jackie. I read a long time ago a book by Doris Lessing called Shikasta, and she was a follower of Jaid Gurdjieff, but she put kind of his philosophy, which as I find out more and more about Buddhism, was a Russian interpretation of Buddhism more or less, um, that has that long, it includes this really long viewpoint. And that really helps me a lot when I'm starting to feel discouraged or desperate or you know all of those things and, and how futile my individual efforts are. I, I think of that in that each one can do what they can do, and if you can keep doing what you can do and have a positive attitude and that hopefulness in the long term, mm-hmm. that that helps me a lot. Mm-hmm. Great. Thank you. Yes, and uh, so in a couple of weeks, I, I will share both from uh, this book, this uh, From Me to We, and also um, a beautiful piece uh, written by... Um, Ernest Kallenbeck, who um, wrote a book called uh, Ecotopia, uh, who passed away in April. And uh, I've gotten to be 
uh, friends and, and uh, close with his uh, with his wife uh, Christine um, Lee Felt, who uh, sent me this. This is printed out. It was found on his computer um, uh, after his death. He died in April, and he was this amazing visionary. Um, and it was it was a, a, a letter, epistle to the Ecotopians, uh, a, a letter, a visionary letter of how to hold the situation uh, that really inspired me. And one of the one of the pieces is. Um, uh, one of the essential ingredients is the human heart is one of the things that sustains us most is hope, not out of fear, but out of possibility. Um, and uh, so I wanted to share some of it. It's so beautiful. Uh, and we'll look at that and uh, the from me to we. Uh, and in the meantime, uh, just as we close, get in touch with the fact that you care. And then it's not up to you to save the world. It's just up to you to maybe be as conscious and as loving and have the capacity to hold it all without figuring out any answers. Just resting in the not knowing. And that includes not knowing that things might turn into the next visionary possibility. You don't know. Letting go of knowing and just loving. May we all see through our fear and confusion and hold our our lives and our earth with great kindness and compassion. May all beings come to the end of suffering and express their love well. May all benefit from our coming here together and sharing the Dharma. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.